0: What are your thoughts about Chronicle having a female lead? Oh yeah, you sent me that article. I would not have anticipated Chronicle getting any kind of follow-up, so I'm
1: honestly like
0: open to it, I guess. Like,
1: Wasn't it rumored, though, that there was always going to be a follow-up, but they just didn't have time or didn't have the right people behind it? No,
0: honestly, I think it, it was uh, both Max Landis getting cancelled and also, um, what's his name from Fen uh, his career going in the toilet as well, but for different reasons. Josh Trank. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that's what I mean. Like the not the right people behind it. They didn't have uh, anybody who could, I guess make a sequel or a prequel or, or continue on with it. Cause there was a lot of interest. I If I remember correctly, there was a lot of interest right after it's release about turning it into like some sort of series or, or uh... yeah,
0: no, it was a sleeper hit. I mean, I remember us talking about it at the time and then, you know, uh, mainline critics were also pointing out that like nobody saw the kind of surprise popularity of it coming. Mm-hmm. And obviously it worked out really well in that kind of, it was one of the rare examples of like a found footage movie Combined with something that was really popular, or becoming even ever more popular at the time, superhero movies, and the fact that it could combine those two ideas and make it good, plus like some up and coming young talent, I think it was like lightning in a bottle. And I can't. I think you know they could potentially go back into it. I think they always probably wanted to do a sequel with the original behind the scenes people.
1: I hope it's a continuation of the story in the first movie and not just like another story set in the same universe. I hate it when they do that.
0: Uh, yeah. Honestly, I have no idea how they would approach it. I mean, is it like a development announcement or, or like how far along in the process? are? Well, they?
1: who knows? Like this could just kind of wither away in development hell and never come to fruition. Right. But I, I mean, it's the first time I've heard anything about Chronicle and, and since it came out really. And I figured you'd be interested because you're like a big fan of the movie, and I I was too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I liked I really liked it at the time. I thought the it was like a kind of like a, an incubator of sorts for talent. Like you know, we we it was one of the first times people had seen Dane DeHaan and Michael B. Jordan, Josh Trank obviously, Max Landis. Um, obviously Landis is kind of a terrible person, or a lot a terrible person. <laughs> so. You know, the the gamble didn't pay off uh, on all fronts, but <laughs> um, so it's, it's good that you brought that up, actually, because we are going to be talking about spinoff superhero stuff in this episode, along with other things. But uh, why don't we just get into it? Welcome to episode 97 of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. My name is Robert Snow in Toronto. I'm joined by my co-host Jason Chan in Vancouver. And this time on the show, we're going to be talking about three, count them, three movies. First up, the latest DC superhero slash supervillain team up. The Suicide Squad, not Suicide Squad 2016, but The Suicide Squad. Then we will get into the new film from David Lowery, The Green Knight. And we'll finish it off with a little bit of discussion on Zola, a movie that hit Sundance way back before the pandemic and was sadly delayed, but finally hit theaters a few weeks ago, and we both had a chance to see it, so we'll uh, cram in a bit of chatter on that right towards the end. But switching back to... The genre we were kind of getting into in the cold open there, uh, superhero, supervillain, comic book stuff, Uh, I noticed on Letterboxd that you only gave the Suicide Squad 3 out of 5, which feels a little bit harsh, if I'm being honest. I mean, I know you come in below me on a regular basis, but you came in a full star below me. 3 out of 5, I gave it 4 out of 5, so you got to explain yourself, like... If if the original Suicide Squad in my books is like I don't know one and a half to two out of five, and this new one is four, like what what would this new version have had to do to to
1: get you really on board with it? Okay, well I gotta say like I don't get the hype. Oh, interesting. You could definitely feel like the Guardians of the Vo- Galaxy kind of vibe to it. I definitely think the music is too on the nose. I think it was fine in its execution. But I don't see it as anything really it doesn't really stand out in any way to me.
0: Let's meet your team. It's
1: okay, I'm not okay. Each member is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities.
0: I need to feel the on my, head, on my
1: head. Hey guys, sorry I'm late. Had to go number two.
0: Good to know. And having established that I was a certain amount more positive than you on this, I mean I vividly remember seeing the original one, even though the movie itself is just like a blob in my memory. The editing specifically was one of my huge pain points with that movie. Yeah. And I think you could add the, the horrible soundtrack selections to that same kind of general <laughs> critique, but... It just it was it was so atrocious, worse even than some of the other stuff that DC was getting lampooned for at the time, like Batman v Superman and and things like that. Like the construction of it was so bad that coming into this, even though it did obviously had a lot of those those James Gunn touches that you pointed out, I still think it it improved on the concept so much and fully embraced what the. What the premise is you know these ex-cons with various powers or abilities being sent into these missions that where they're probably going to die like it it hit all of those things in, in such a consistent way that it really was a, what i think we all wanted from the original david ayer one back in 2016. i i don't give it
1: bonus points for being better than the original because that's not a high bar okay like <laughs> for me right I think the execution was fine, but it didn't stand out in any way. So I didn't find it that funny. Um, Some of the jokes landed, some of them didn't. I don't particularly find comic gore that interesting to me, visually or otherwise. I thought the best part of the movie was the first scene, the beach raid, where it really sets the tone for the movie. But the rest of it felt like any other superhero film. The final villain, as it's spoiled in the trailer, is a giant kaiju monster. Right. I think you get the reluctant leader hero in Idris Elba. Um, you get these side characters who I think are much more interesting and end up stealing the show, especially Polka Dot Man. But again, I don't think just because it's so much better than the original, which honestly was pretty atrocious, I'd give it bonus points. I think in the grand scheme of DCEU films... I don't know if it's more, I definitely don't think it's more entertaining than something like Aquaman.
0: No, that's fair. I would, you know, I think to me, Aquaman is still the highest in terms of like overall entertainment value.
1: Well, well, let me, let me ask you this. What makes Sui- the Suicide Squad so good? Like, what does it do that's so different from all the other good superhero films out there?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Like,
1: how does it stand out? I, I, I that's the thing I didn't get.
0: Let's l- lay the groundwork then. So. Okay.
1: <laughs> good. I like it. We're getting into this.
0: Yeah. So, so the the groundwork then for the for people who have only been, you know, if you're the kind of person who only kind of touches down in the superhero genre every so often, you don't really get caught up in the continuity. Um, This is the second attempt at the Suicide Squad narrative. It's unclear exactly from this movie whether it's a sequel, per se, to the original 2016 one, which was so derided by critics and fans, um, or if it's more of a soft reboot. But either way, we are getting a few of the same characters from the first attempt in 2016, along with a whole host of new ones. And The setup is the same, wherein all of these people are superpowered or very skilled individuals who are all in prison in Belle Reve Correction Facility in Louisiana for various crimes that, you know, they've probably been put there by some of your favorite DC superheroes. And the US government recruits them kind of against their will, implants a exploding tracker thingy into their neck, which they can control remotely and compel them to take on these suicide missions, with various outcomes. And if they are successful, they will get 10 years off their sentence. So this new one starts with like, it throws us right into the action. Unlike the last time around where the suicide squad is trying to infiltrate this South American Island nation of Corto Maltese, which has Undergone a military coup, and Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davis, has informed the various members of the, the Suicide Squad that they have to get in, figure out what's going on, and topple this military coup before it can possibly threaten the US or the world at large. And then, of course, if you've seen any James Gunn movies, you know, that there'll be lots of comical hijinks and uh, possibly violent encounters that follow. He's been given an R rating this time or the the freedom of an R rating so he can uh, chase some of the kind of visuals that he's not allowed to include in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Um, and so I think it's that, getting back to your original question, we are getting more freedom for James Gunn to kind of go back to the sorts of movies he made before he joined Marvel. And he can tell you know, more adult jokes, he can show more violence, he can, you know, give the material what it probably deserves, which I think some of us hoped for when the original was put out in 2016. And you're right that, you know, you can't really give the movie bonus points just because it's better than the first one. But I don't know, I think it 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 delivers on the original concept even if the first one didn't exist, you know, if you if you're thinking about a team of terrible people, who are sent to do a horrible job or <laughs> who are sent to do a very dangerous job and by the end of it, you're supposed to sort of see them as antiheroes despite them being like serial killers or, you know, horrible criminals. You know, if if by the end of it, you can empathize with them a little bit, then the movie has succeeded in some way. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my take on it. But I, I 100% agree with you though that compared to, say, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, this is less funny in a laugh-out-loud sort of way. So it, I did go in expecting more of the Guardians-style jokes, and I didn't get that, so... Well,
1: I was going to say, I think Guardians of the Galaxy had more to play with. Different worlds, different universes, set in space, different creatures. Meanwhile, in Suicide Squad, you're, you're limited to one setting and this group of ragtag heroes um, that seem very familiar. I will just say one more thing is that exploding tracker thingy. I like that description. (laughs) Very apt, very uh, descriptive. The entire time I'm watching this and there's that extended scene where Harley Quinn escapes from her prison, quote unquote. That part in particular, but the entire movie felt to me like Birds of Prey. It was fine. It was well executed. There are parts that are good. Not every joke landed. And so that's kind of where I landed. I, I liked Birds of Prey, but I didn't love it. And it seems like every critic and every person I know is head over heels with this film. And I just don't get it. I it, Maybe it's just me, but I didn't feel it stood out in any way, shape, or form. There, I didn't feel like anything was particularly fresh. I, I think the, the treatment of the certain characters are really good. So like Peacemaker was really good. And how they did away with Boomerang in the first part was really good. Because it kind of signifies that all bets are off. Right. Right. Even if you're a character from
0: the previous film, you don't necessarily have plot armor. I mean, exactly. The movie, the movie gets lots of points for me on that score because it, you know, they, they had talked about that being a possible consequence originally, or even in the comic, if you want to go back that
1: far, and the original movie didn't deliver on that hardly at all. And the most important part of any superhero film, in my opinion, or one of the most important, is how interesting is the villain. To me, The Suicide Squad had a very generic villain. I thought The Starfish was kind of fun to watch for about a minute. <laughs> then I got really sick of it. Uh, the Dictator was, uh, I-, I think, like a mustache twirler. Yeah, yeah. And and the mad genius with the tube sticking out of his brain. The Thinker. Yeah, The Thinker. I didn't think he did anything except just spew out exposition. Yeah, he
0: was an exposition dump, but I think he, he is important in the sense that he... he- shows an example of like a super powered individual who is neither a hero or an out and out villain. He's kind of mixed up in the gray zone and he's obviously, you know, he's become a hired, the hired help for this military
1: coup. Basically, But like all of the main characters. So like Harley Quinn, Bloodsport, King shark, even polka dot man. The only reason we know they're villains is because they start off in jail, being in jail. Mm, right. We never got the feeling that they were truly, you know, villainous. I guess is the word. Like the only guy who I can I feel that toes the line between antihero and villain is Peacemaker, and it's it's no coincidence to me that he's the most interesting character. I mean, King Shark. I I can't possibly imagine what crime he committed. Like he raided a fish store or something. I don't know. <laughs>
0: like <laughs> I mean, I imagine he was eating people. Like he's
1: a cute man shark i mean what could he possibly do there's one scene at- oh now
0: now you have to you have to admit that the movie must have won you over in some way if you can see a giant man shark as uh cute and lovable i mean he you see him gnawing on people's skulls and ripping people in half in this yeah movie.
1: okay so like i said like execution was fine i think it was a fine film three out of five is not a bad score okay all right it, it to me three out of five is your movie was fine um, it didn't blow me away and it didn't disappoint me. I think the problem is people thought so poorly of David Ayer's Suicide Squad that they came into this with really low expectations. And so if you come right. with really low expectations, then it turns out to be half decent. You kind of overrate it because you are it, it's so unexpected. Yeah. But maybe because I had heard so much good buzz leading into it, I was expecting something in the Guardians of the Galaxy level where I was really wowed by... Just the creative direction and the uh, the sort of universe that they painted. But I didn't get either of that. And maybe that's my fault for having my expectations set too high. Do you think the
0: gore or the R rating uh, impacted your decision at all? Because I know, I mean, of the two of us, you you like gore or you have like a lower uh, tolerance for the stuff. And I will admit, like... On the face of it, like, there's a lot of gore, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of very gory kills in this. Like, if you have a weak stomach at all, this might be one to kind of uh, reconsider a little bit because they, they, they don't spare anything.
1: Yeah, so that's the thing. It didn't lose or add any points for me. The only type of gore that really gets me is when it's too realistic or Quentin Tarantino, where it's just like liters of blood. Um, the Harley Quinn escape scene where they like replace some of the blood splatter with flowers. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting uh, creative choice. The part where Man Shark rips a man in half. I thought that was actually pretty cool. There's a comic book violence to it. Not like Watchmen where it seems a little realistic and, and too much slow-mo and a little too dark. Uh, some of the humor here is very funny. It, it's meant to be that way, especially when they raid the camp. And I don't want to spoil it too much, but that was actually like a really funny highlight. <laughs> yeah. Um But yeah, like there are people in my theater who were entertained by the blood splatter and the gore. I wasn't moved either way. Mm, okay. um, I may be dead inside, <laughs> but um I just don't see violence as a big pull for a movie unless it's like, a Keanu Reeves John Wick type, where like the choreography and the gunplay is very realistic or very cool. That's something that feels fresh. I think it'd be
0: fair to say that maybe Gunn was overdoing it in certain shots or sequences a little bit, just to prove that he could still do it.
1: I get that feeling. Yeah,
0: he's been in the Marvel world for two films now, and coming up on a third one. You know, with the the the, the third Guardians movie and the pipeline, and. But prior to all of that, he was, he worked for Troma, which was a like a schlock exploitation type of uh, studio. And of course he, he made Slither and um, almost got canceled, almost got fired by Disney for some objectionable humor that he made on, uh, that he posted on Twitter about 10 years ago. So, you know, he has a background in this stuff, in, in this like uh, goopy, um, gritty stuff. And I don't know, maybe, maybe if you were a little bit cynical about it you could say like okay no he's given the license he's he's really embracing it and that might be too much for some people or they might not get the joke and i that that's totally fair i think
1: i mean as a frame of reference i gave it three out of five but i also gave three black widow three out of five i gave tomorrow war three out of five godzilla versus kong three out of five so i mean if you're genuinely entertained by these movies i i I, like by no means am i not recommending the suicide squad We've got so many good superhero films right now. The Suicide Squad does not even come close to cracking the top 10. For
0: me. In terms of like top 10 of the year or top 10? 10... No, just
1: top 10 superhero movies in general. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean. Or even top 20. Like I I find it hard to list in the top 20 off the top of my head. It might come close. It might make it into my top 20
0: just because I like the premise and I like the the actors involved. Um
1: I yeah, top ten would be tough, given you know,
0: <laughs> but do I, you
1: know what I mean that it feels this film feels a little generic?
0: A little bit. I mean, like like I said before, like I didn't I didn't laugh uproariously at the jokes in the way that I did, say certainly with the First Guardians movie because I think you know, when the First Guardians movie came along, it was such a different flavor from the Marvel stuff we'd had up until that point. And very self-referential, which is uh, a style of humor I like anyway, and not to mention all of the the visuals and the song choices and everything. Like the complete package, there was was really special. I think you know in the overall Marvel canon, and so this comes along and like the songs in this are different. They're a little bit more understated. I didn't I didn't find them to be as on the nose as you did, but. Uh, at least in terms of like lyrics the cues
1: I think the cues were really on the nose that's what gets me the most
0: are you thinking of like you know you can see it uh, a music cue or a needle drop coming because it's that point in the movie where it makes sense to have one
1: yeah, basically.
0: Okay, so it wasn't so much like the particular songs he picked but just like... No,
1: I in fact I had no problems with the songs David David Ayer chose in the first Suicide <laughs> Yeah, War. I don't think he chose those songs. <laughs> My big problem was the fact that he was so on the nose with it. It was so literal in, in his song choice. This one, I agree with you, is a little more subdued but it's the same problem in a lot of these movies and I heard Cruella had the same problem too where like you can see the musical cue coming and it it's too on the nose. It is too self-referential. It's almost too self-aware. And, you know, maybe Jay- like Gunn is like a victim of his own success and that we just expect something fresh and new every time.
0: Yeah, well, I think the the real test for him will be like assuming, you know, uh, Guardians 3 comes out and whenever it is, like 2023, 2024, and then he's got to turn around and make something else and... You know, whether if he's not going to make a Guardians movie or a Suicide Squad movie, do people kind of unfairly expect him to have those these sorts of like uh, jukebox type soundtracks in everything he makes? Because I think that would be, you know, that that would be unfortunate if that was the case, because I think he can as a filmmaker, he could probably do any sort of thing if he wanted to.
1: Yeah, I, Um, I feel like with Guardians of the Galaxy, he just has more to play with because he's there's layers of plot and character in there. Um, with this one, some of it's just thrown in there for for um, laughs and kicks.
0: I will say though, like they they the development that they give to the core, say five or seven, five to seven characters is more than I expected, and more than a number of other superhero movies, especially team up movies where you you don't have as much time with each character. You know, like. By the end of this movie, you do find out about Polka Dot Man's relationship with his mother and you find out about Bloodsport's relationship with his daughter.
1: And you make assumptions, especially with Polka Dot Mo- Man and his mother. Yeah,
0: but they, did, they give a certain amount of screen time to it, more so than I think they do to other characters of that stature in other movies, you know, because they take him seriously to the point where... You know, you are sympathize with the fact that he was experimented on as a child by his mother and you understand why where his brain is at and the fact that he gets a, a defined arc by the end is, I think, sets, sets those characters ahead of other ones and say, like, I don't know, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Like, theatrical cut of Justice League. Any ensemble film. Should we talk at all before we move on about uh, the so-called release the air cut?
1: thing that's building on Twitter. Oh, for the Suicide Squad? Or not the Suicide Squad, for Suicide Squad? Yeah. I'm always like, I mean, I'm always interested in a director's true vision. That's why I love director's cut so much. Right. And and that's why I still love physical media because you can't get it on streaming unless it's like an official release. I'd be interested to really see what his cut would be. Like, I don't think it'll be that much better than what came out theatrically because the, the theatrical version just was very weak in a lot of aspects. I fail to see how he could Im- really improve it other than, you know, editing and the introduction of the characters. Yeah,
0: I think it would be it would be more capably edited. I think it would obviously have fewer jokes because that's exactly what was added in reshoots when they took him off the project in the editing bay. Um, so you would have gotten a more serious thing more along the lines of like uh, end of watch or fury or something like his previous work. You wouldn't, it would not have had that guardians flavor that D that DC, DC's top brass obviously wanted so much when they saw how popular the first guardians was.
1: Right. And and it, that's not to say like the first suicide squad was, was terrible. Like Deadshot got a really big fleshed out backstory. Um El Diablo, the guy who shoots flames or whatever. I thought he, he had a really um interesting character arc as well. So, like, there are parts to me that I think are salvageable, but you can only do so much when the source material, like, wasn't very good. Yeah.
0: I just don't know. If, I mean, all bets are off, obviously, with these director's cuts. Um, I spent many years... Disbelieving the idea that a Snyder cut would ever happen, and look where we are
1: now. And I'm glad we got it. I'm glad we got the Snyder cut because I think it is so much superior, and I think it's actually a very good superhero. Ultimately, yeah. I,
0: I mean, I I have to agree with you. I I'm, I wasn't uh, when we talked about it uh, a few months ago. Like I wasn't as enthusiastic as you were, but still, like you have to admit that it was an improvement. And I mean, I can't say that uh, that David Ayer is as um, unique a filmmaker as Snyder in terms of visuals um, or plotting or character. So I don't know that he's going to have the the fan momentum behind him to make WB uh, do this. I don't know.
1: I don't think so. If the Suicide Squad was a bomb, which it isn't, then maybe the era cut would have more momentum. But because this was so good, there's no reason to go back. I mean, just continue where you left off with the Suicide Squad. Yeah.
0: Do you think they could improve? Like, the, they could get you to, say, a... Uh, a four out of five, for example, with a follow-up to Gunn's movie, whether whether it was directed by Gunn or not. Like, well do you do you see room for these characters or this premise to improve or, or grow over time? Or do you think it's it like this this was a one and done kind of thing?
1: I would hope that there's a sequel because I'm interested to see what they do with the characters. Um, but I think the way they could improve it is Part of the reason I think the Suicide Squad is so interesting is because these are superheroes forced to do good, or quote-unquote good, um, or forced to do the bidding of Amanda Waller. Uh, I think that's a very interesting dynamic. I think interaction between the characters is really good. I like the rivalry between the characters. I think that has plenty of legs. There are a lot of ways you can go. I just It needs to have more than just the Suicide Squad teaming up to defeat a CGI monster. It needs to be more than that.
0: Do you think there's something like, um, you know, they obviously they they set up the seeds of, you know, the Suicide Squad, maybe having some blackmail on the U.S. government. Do you think it would be more interesting if they if they brought in kind of like that paranoid government thriller type uh, aspect to it where there's there's a B plot going on that's running on running underneath the overall like take down the big bad?
1: Yeah, I don't I don't even think it needs to be a B plot. I think that can be the plot. Where the government is trying to control the suicide squad, like get them to do their bidding, uh, maybe tricking them into doing their bidding and making the suicide squad really reflect on their actions and what they're doing. And whether or not what they're doing is worth it. So we, in the beginning, we had Bloodsport saying, rejecting Amanda Waller's proposition because he doesn't want anything to do with it. But the moment she says, well, you know what? You don't do this. I'm going to make your daughter, I'm going to throw your daughter into jail. That's a very interesting dynamic. And that's arguably the strongest push for him to be as part of the Suicide Squad than any other character.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's, um, you know, they uh, the first movie probably overdid, the amount of Amanda Waller and this movie scales it back. So I think there's maybe it scales it back too much. Though. Yeah. Cause she's really not in it a whole lot and, and she's even sort of like taken out, uh, temporarily par- partway through. So I think you could, you could make her into more of a villain or more of a, uh, like more present as a villain because she is, she's obviously she's got the hand of God. You know, she is, she's able to kill these people.
1: Yeah. She should be the big bad and her proposition for taking 10 years off your sentence and the criminals, these super criminals are are into that. (laughs) Like that's not good enough. If anything, these super criminals are like, I can probably just break out of here. No problem. Anyway, what's 10 years off my sentence? Like you really need to give them a really strong motivation. Um, then Harley Quinn is kind of interesting in that regard because you never quite know what her motivation is. She's just a crazy person. So the fact that she's so willing to go along with the entire mission. Just presumably because she can take 10 years off her sentence. I don't really buy that. I would find it more believable if Harley Quinn joined the suicide squad on her own volition because she likes blowing things up. Right. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that's more in her character. I can see why a, a, a character like, what's his name? Michael Rooker, Savant. Okay. I can see why, you know, he might want to take 10 years off his sentence but king shark again like why does he need 10 years off his sentence he i don't know i feel like he's not gonna die what's what's you know what's there to gain anyway from losing 10 years 10 years is nothing for him yeah. probably
0: no I, the, you're right like the motivations are obviously change a lot depending on who you're talking about and and harley quinn is kind of like a engine of fate you know i mean she doesn't really she's really have big plans she just kind of ends up where the winds blow her kind of thing
1: yeah it, it it's just i was looking for something a little more chaotic not visually but the characters themselves if that makes any sense
0: uh favorite ridiculous character from the suicide squad oh, polka dot man hands down really you yeah you it, but he's like a he's sort of like a main character who persists like if you had to pick somebody say from that beach raid scene who has just got the silliest powers oh like, the, the beach scene Yeah. Are we talking TDK? Is he like, I mean... uh, I was going
1: to say TDK by far. Uh, I found the weasel really annoying. (laughs) Blackguard, I didn't care for. Savant, again, I didn't really care for. Um, TDK, I think, had the most interesting sort of superpower. And also the funniest death, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone else was there just to be canon fodder, basically. Like, uh, Mong, Gal, Javelin, I mean, they get just, just go and get shot up. Sorry, spoilers, but whatever, you know.
0: Yeah. No, I think if I, like, uh, I would go with TDK if we're just talking about the beach scene, but if we're talking about the movie as a whole, I, King Shark is my guy. I, I just love that guy so much.
1: Yeah, King Shark would be a second yeah, place yeah, yeah. to poke it up. Um,
0: okay, so uh, so then Changing Tracks completely, something that is probably the furthest thing from a high-powered Hollywood blockbuster We've got an adaptation of a 14th century chivalric romance. <laughs> uh, the Green Knight, directed by David Lowery. O oh, greatest of kings, let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this
1: game. I will be thee. One
0: year hence. <laughs>
1: yes. Okay. So, did you see my letterbox score for this?
0: I saw that you came in at a half star below me. I think you came in at four. Yeah. Out of five. Yeah. 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 Okay. So this okay. one didn't
1: annoy you as much. <laughs> you know,
0: you're well within your usual margins there. So
1: I I struggled this one though. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I struggled with this one. though. I almost gave it a three and a half. Okay. Okay. I thought the second half of the movie redeemed the first part by a huge margin. Um, I think it was too slow to get going. This is one of those weird movies where like the critics loved it, but the cine score by audience was a C plus and I can totally get it. It is such a slow burn. If you're not interested in this Arthurian legend, if you're not interested in visuals, if you're looking for something that's a little more fast-paced, if you're looking for something that's more bad guy versus good guy conflict-driven, this isn't the movie for you. I, I can't recommend it to everyone. No. I do feel it runs 20 minutes too long. Mm. And yeah. It takes its time a little too much. There are a couple scenes where Garwin, or is it Gwynn? Gwyn. That Gwyn, Gwyn. <laughs> They pronounce it like five different ways in the film. Anyway, I'm going to go with the Sean Harris pronunciation of Garwin. There's a couple scenes where Garwin begins his journey where I felt I would have cut or made it short. But do you want to just go off on the plot first to tell people
0: about it? I'll I'll try to do a quick rundown on the plot. So this is one of the very few adaptations of the aforementioned 14th century poem. Uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which was written by an anonymous scribe. We don't know who it who is credited to. Um, there's been centuries worth of scholars analyzing this thing over the years. One of the most well-known translations of the original Middle English is by J.R.R. Tolkien himself. And it's not hard to see some of the connective tissue between the poem and some of the stuff that would end up in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit later on. Um, so if you are a Tolkien fan... Obviously, this is probably worth checking out, but it follows a up-and-coming or unproven knight played by Dev Patel, Gwyn, Gowen. <laughs> Garmin <laughs> needs a GPS commercial. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> We were introduced to him. He's not. He doesn't have any deeds to his name or any reason, but he is part of Arthur's round table. And this is a version of King Arthur who's getting on in years. He doesn't really have the physical strength uh, or the energy anymore, but he's still King of Camelot. And he's not named as Arthur in the actual official credits of this movie, but it's pretty obvious, you know, we are dealing with an adaptation of Arthurian legend. And one Christmas Eve, the... Court is gathered for a feast, and an unwelcome guest arrives, the so-called Green Knight, this towering uh, figure who kind of looks a bit like an Ent from Lord of the Rings. He's got a huge axe, and he proposes a Christmas game where anyone present in the court can take a swing at him, a single blow, and he will accept that as long as one year later that person meets him in his Green Chapel and receives the exact same blow in return. So Gwen, wanting to prove himself, stands up, volunteers, and chops off the Green Knight's head. And, of course, the Green Knight, being this sorcery-created creature, he just picks up his head and goes riding out of the hall. And then, of course, now Gwen is realizing, oh my god, I have to voluntarily offer my neck to this guy in a year's time. And so he has to go out on this quest and kind of learn a little bit about himself and how dedicated he really is to being a knight and the quest uh, obviously tests him in a number of ways, and you're not really sure if he's actually going to make it to the end. Um, and there's a bit of a fake-out ending, which I won't spoil, but the whole thing is meant to be a cautionary tale. A uh, It's loaded with symbolism. All the visuals obviously play into that. It's supposed to talk about, you know, the ideals of being a knight and what it takes to be a hero. Um, so, like you said, very slow boil, um, not for everybody you probably have to have some like English lit or medieval studies kind of in your background maybe to really get into it.
1: I feel, yeah, to enjoy a bit more, I think it helps to have that kind of background. This thing is awash with symbolism, down from like the objects to a lot of the visual colors that, that uh, Lowry represents. So one of the more interesting articles I read about this film was the fact that they described Dev Patel's Garwin as a sort of millennial hero. Um, this sort of person who whines about you know not getting things even though he's never earned it um Do you buy that argument because I push back against that I-, I would push back on it a little
0: bit just to say that the i I understand where that comes from because obviously he doesn't he puts off his obligation at first he doesn't want to go he's not very enthusiastic about actually leaving Camelot and going off on the quest. And he's presented with with many outs, possible p- outs, and uh, excuses. And I can see how like somebody could see that as like, oh, all millennials these days—they're always looking for ways to get out of things. So maybe a little bit, but I I think it—you could go a little bit far into like stereotypes if you. Uh,
1: yeah, if- I was gonna say like this isn't the first time we've met a protagonist who isn't dick in the first place. Like there was there's nothing honorable when we first meet Garwin. And maybe that throws people off a little bit because we're kind of under the assumption that all the Knights of the Round Table are honorable, capable knights. When we first meet Garwin, he's a womanizer. He visits brothels all the time. He's he's drunk all the time. And so when the Green Knight presents himself, Garwin sees this as a chance to increase his street cred, for lack of a better word. Yeah,
0: and it's like he the movie kind of says, well... He was very quick to jump up and volunteer for the first part of the game, but he doesn't have any follow through.
1: Exactly. So all he cared about was his sort of his reputation, his standing in this court of knights. Only then later does he learn about what it takes to earn that honor and that right to be called a knight of the round table. And I I think that journey is very interesting to me. It wasn't always clear that that was the specific journey though, because there was so much happening in between with symbolism. When Garwin ends up going on his journey, he ends up meeting different people along the way. So there's the giants, the talking fox that you see in the trailer, And Joel Edgerton and Alicia Vikander as this, uh, I I don't know, this lord and his, his wife, I
0: guess. Yeah, that's all they're referred to in the credits, lord and lady.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he's tempted with sex. He's tempted with um all sorts of things there's one point where like the part with the giants where i think he it's implied that he's under the influence of shrooms
0: (laughs) uh yeah i I guess i I didn't connect those two things but yeah the
1: because he eats the mushrooms and then he sees the giants later sees them yeah so i don't know if that's a hallucination or what it really represents symbolically so there are moments like that where i get kind of lost that's an addition from the
0: poem because he doesn't have an encounter with with the female giants in the original poem. So I think they, you know, if they decided to make a link there between him like scrambling around for mushrooms to stay alive and then later having a trip, I mean that I guess that makes sense. Um, but it, I think it, the the bit with the giants though is is definitely it throws you for a loop because it's one of the most in-your-face examples of, like, the sorcery side of what we're getting here. You know, there's not a whole lot of magic going on, very obvious magic, but here we're presented with these, like, very outlandish characters. And throughout the whole movie, there's this sense of, like, he's almost wandering, like, a post-apocalyptic landscape, and it feels like he's always late to things happening. Like, there are battles happening. He comes across, like, the, the, the leftovers of a battle, and he encounters Barry Keegan's character... And there's always something happening off screen. And I think that to me, that was supposed to reference the fact that like, he's almost too late to become a knight. Hmm,
1: that's an interesting read.
0: He's almost like running out of time before like the world moves on and doesn't care about chivalric romance or, you know, brave knights and dragons and jousting anymore. It's, it's like the everything's passing him by. The giants, the, the sorcery, the magic is kind of leaving the world forever kind of thing. That was what I hmm. got from
1: it. I had a different read. So that's interesting. Okay. So my read on it was that magic and sorcery was pervasive throughout the entire thing. So it's implied that Garwin's mom is Morgan Le Fay, who is King Arthur's foe and and dabbles in all sorts of weird black magic. And there are a couple scenes where there's like a Ouija board and seance kind of type deal. Yeah, yeah. It's implied that she creates the Green Knight. Yeah, so that was my read on it is that somewhere underneath this like, post-apocalyptic, you know, dreary medieval landscape. There's this there's this universe that's brimming with magic that is forcing Garwin to go on this journey of self-discovery. I don't know exactly what each represents, but I think the clearest one was the belt, the sash that he wears, the green sash. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that was probably the most interesting part of the movie and also because it's the color green. Um and how it represents basically Garwin's, I guess, dedication to his cause, dedication to his mission, and the weight of it.
0: A little bit, but it's also it's got a negative connotation too because it's uh, it's supposed to be enchanted and supposed to protect him from harm, and it's shown that like, right, the, his attachment to that is keeping him from becoming the truly honorable knight that he theoretically wants to be, right
1: it's it's kind of like his safety blanket that he refuses to let go and grow up and be a man, right? Yeah, exactly. It, but then the ending kind of throws it on his head because I guess we're going to spoilers here. <laughs> I mean, okay, so in the end, if... Gar- spoilers
0: for a 14th century story. but
1: Yeah, I mean, but if in the end, if Garwin dies, what does he gain personally? Like people learn about him and we learn about him. But Garwin never gets to live out his days as an honorable knight. Right. He realizes at his time of death what honor, you know, what having honor means and and how it's earned. Yeah. But he never lives out that life to be an honorable life knight. So I, I don't quite understand, you know, why exactly is the point of, I guess, the sash and his journey for you know, other people. I guess. I mean, does Morgan Le Fay hate her son so much that he, she has to teach him a lesson in which the ultimate result, no matter what, is death?
0: Okay. Well, that's yeah. That's an interesting take because this is where, again, knowing the the poem actually helps you out. Oh, okay. Please enlighten me. This is a situation where Lori is being ambiguous deliberately by cutting early because he could he he leaves it up to you whether you think uh, Gawain actually does die. At the end, he obviously he he makes the choice to abandon the sash, give up the safety blanket, and take the blow that he agreed to. But in the original poem, he does this, and the Green Knight does bring his axe down, but only gives him a small little nick on the back of the neck.
1: Oh, yes, I read about that.
0: To show that um, that Gawain did indeed set his neck out. He, he uh, abided by the bargain. And as thanks for that, the Green Knight says, okay, I'm not going to kill you. You can return to Camelot. You can have the story. And then Gawain ends up wearing the green sash or the belt later on as a symbol of like
1: how he was tempted but resisted temptation. So that makes a lot more sense. I wish that original ending was kept in there. I did read that Lowry did film an ending and he was kind of ambiguous too. But I think that he did film an ending, a much clearer ending where Garwin does get his head chopped off.
0: Okay, yeah. And that, obviously then that would that would flip it from the original poem ending. So, I mean, that would have been a choice too.
1: So I, I guess the decision is, does Garwin die as an honorable knight even when no one really knows his story anyway because he dies alone? Or does Garwin live out his days as a dishonorable knight bring down the the entire kingdom and die a very horrific death. That that's kind of like the two choices he's rep, he's presented with, right? The
0: third choice is to abandon this, the the belt and accept what's coming to him, accept what's coming to him whether he dies or not and and have the honor one way or the other because ultimately the one of the main themes of the the poem is to is to pursue this like ideal of bravery and honor above everything else whether you live or die. And this movie kind of questions that and says, well, I mean, there's all sorts of complicating factors and maybe you want to hang out with Alicia Vikander, or maybe you want to have sex with the other Alicia Vikander, or, you know, there's all these, these competing things. Now, did you ever see a ghost story? David Laurie's film from, no, I have not. I've been meaning to, but, and this is where I think like being a huge lover of that movie, like, I mean, that's like a four and a half, five out of five for me all the time because, but again, it is, it is like this movie. It's very slow and you'd be hard pressed at, during huge chunks of it to know what the point is or where it's going or what you're meant to take away from it. You really do have to be in the right mood Agreed. for it. You have to be in a, a kind of a very patient contemplative move for a ghost story. And I think Lori is kind of bringing those same ideas and that kind of that vibe to bear on the green Knight* too, like a hundred percent, especially totally. that, that first section you mean like, like the the Gawain setting out on his journey is very much like Casey Affleck under the sheet in a Ghost Story, where he's like, <laughs> that movie is like. There's 45 minutes of just like Casey Affleck standing around in the house where he his character used to live, watching other people buy the house, move in, move out, and you're like, okay, this is just so the story is like time. Yeah, so you so know? there's
1: a there's a strong Terrence Malick sort of vibe there, right? Like it's people doing everyday normal things. Visually interesting, but narratively really, really fucking boring.
0: <laughs> if the medieval stuff well, or the poem stuff wasn't enough, like you got that vibe on top of it. So yeah, it, you do have to go in with this with a, you know, a bit of a <laughs> critical eye or a bit of consideration.
1: And and like Malik, when it's boring, it's really boring. But when it's good, it's really good. That last hour... I really flirted with three and a half because the first hour really kind of turned me off. I, I swear to God, I was drifting us drifting asleep at some point. I feel like this film is going to be really interesting come award season. Mm.
0: I, I don't expect it to go very high in the big categories, but like production design. I mean, come on. This this is like a instant nomination. Right.
1: But I mean, the critics loved it so much. It feels like a film that film critics must need to like to have some sort of cred <laughs> like if you're a film critic and you're like this film sucks people are gonna be like well you have no idea what makes a right film. right <laughs> that's a good point point. and i feel like sometimes you get that pressure it's kind of like um if you like a michael bay or Zack snyder film you're not a good film critic there's that kind of weird sort of gatekeeping you got to pick the
0: art house stuff and balance it with the mass market stuff otherwise yeah yeah
1: yeah. exactly yeah i I agree the production design is excellent i thought the cinematography was great but it's just not complete and entertaining enough for me to be one of the better films of the year so far at least i mean we're still well we're i mean late 2021 but we've got a lot of stuff coming up uh,
0: maybe to close things out, we'll do a quick little segment on Zola. Now, this is a movie that I don't have the benefit of your Letterbox score to go in on, so I honestly have no idea what you think of this movie.
1: Oh, I don't even know what I scored. I I think I scored it three and a half. Let me look it up real quick.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I went predictably half star above you, so I went four out of five. And
1: oh, I only gave it a.
0: Three. Oh, okay. All right. So, and now, interestingly enough, this isn't. Despite being a total change in genre, it's another A24 release. So we're we're getting, uh, we're getting two A24s for your money in this podcast.
1: This was a really interesting movie to me as well. So again, just because I give a film three out of five, that's still a thumbs up. Doesn't mean I hate it. Yada, yada, yada. I know I can be a little harsh, but that's where I landed. Um, I did flirt with three and a half on this one. You'll find that depending on my mood, I might go up or down half a star. So, I mean, Robin are pretty much in line most of the time. It's just whether yeah. or not I, I feel. <laughs> I shouldn't say whether or not I feel happy that day, but uh, <laughs> there are certain things that I would emphasize over in certain films over others. So Zola is a film that I remember talking about. I think like. A year and a half ago, yeah, you put it
0: on your most anticipated list. Which yeah, f- featured on the on the front page of the site for a solid year.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this was a Twitter thread that was a bizarre story about how a stripper gets roped into this weekend in Florida and ends up getting involved in like a murder plot, a drug deal, all sorts of shady characters, human trafficking. Yeah, human trafficking and. This was all spelled out in a long Twitter thread and it was eventually made into a movie starring Riley Keough and Taylor Page. We just
0: met yesterday and you already trying to take whole trips together? Be ready by two. Hi,
1: you wanna hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kinda long, but it's full of suspense.
0: You wanna go somewhere with me? That's
1: my face. My thing about this movie is it was lacking in certain respects. The one thing that it lacks the most is a proper ending. Mm. Yep. This movie is about two people getting pushed into the most wacky sequences, wacky situations over a weekend, and it just kind of resolves itself. There are certain points where the characters better each other, sabotage each other, but going from point A to point B, I'm not sure anyone changes all that much. The problem with this film for me is that Part of it is just the original source material itself. When we put something online, it's just kind of there. And it's there for people to react. So part of the story of any social media story is how people react to it. We never got this sense from this film. I think it literally follows the events of the Twitter thread, but it doesn't really show how other people react to it. And what the bigger meaning of all this is so that's why i think the ending was really important because we should be told at least in some way how to feel about this and we do in a certain sense we get told how to feel about riley keogh's character zola is kind of a protagonist in this case i guess but it's just kind of there it just kind of exists Uh, the characters exist the plot exists but there's no real change. The Twitter thread is just a Twitter thread in itself. It could just stay there and not be a story at all unless something someone does something to it.
0: Right, that's an excellent point. And they the closest they get to any kind of like um interaction, which I guess you could argue is like the point of Twitter is social interaction. Um the closest they get to like an opposite viewpoint is a brief little scene where you get Riley Keo's characters Perspective, she claims, on what happened, and it was some, drawn from something that the original person posted on Reddit after the uh, the Zola thread blew up on Twitter. And I guess this this person wanted to defend herself or, or, or correct the record or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. And right. the movie the movie encourages you to see Zola as the the one who's uh, telling the truth or the closest thing to the truth, and Riley Keough's character as uh, you know, just sort of trying to cover her ass or something. Um, but yeah, you don't get the actual, the common people, the, the user's reaction to what's going on. I don't remember the timeline, like, did Zola, did she post the entirety of the thread after she was safe at home, or was she posting, was she starting to tweet it out while she was on the road?
1: I can't remember, but it was very interesting how the director, Janiksa, Janiksa Bravo, ended up Adapting this material, so anytime Zola picks up the phone, you hear that Twitter sound, that tweet sound. I thought that was an interesting tool. I don't really know if it was needed. The only thing that it reinforced was the fact that this was a story based off a Twitter thread.
0: Yeah, yeah. You you probably could have cut back on that sound effect a little bit.
1: Or just like, what what was the point of showing it's A Twitter thread if you're not going to also show the reactions to yeah exactly I I think it's an interesting creative choice I think it's a clever way to introduce social media and films rather than having like those digital text boxes show (laughs) up while they're texting I I feel like that's my biggest pet peeve of the movies these days is when they show like the little text box with the text yeah
0: I remember liking it. I, I was a sucker for it the first few times I saw it, and yeah. It, but it's become a tired trope now. Like there was a there was a Jason Reitman movie that was savaged by critics that I actually came to the defense of. It's called Men, Women, and Children. Used that exact visual trope okay. throughout the entire movie, and I remember thinking uh-huh. it was cool at the time. But I imagine if I went back now and watched it, it, it would be pretty cringy. Do you think it, um, it? It's kind of like that video game movie problem where you know how in a video game movie we get kind of like less excitement out of the movie version because we're not controlling the character or like telling the character where to go or to you know go into combat or solve a puzzle or something like that and this is kind of i feel like this is, a, is kind of similar in the sense that the experience of reading a, a epic thread like the one the movie is based on is a very personal experience to you like you open the first tweet You start reading through, you see all the tweets that follow, you're like, oh my God, and you're just reading one after the other, and then probably in between you're seeing people reply to it and uh, memes and reactions to it. Um, So to then kind of zoom out like this movie does and kind of take the third person perspective is maybe it takes away the interactivity a little bit, like like it does in a video game movie.
1: Mm, I, I don't think that's what... Kills video game movies or killed Zola. Okay, okay. They're kind of separate, but I I think what kills video games movies is how how generic and dumb they tend to be
0: <laughs> no but that's the point like the the stories in video game movies are often generic because the ones in games are generic the difference being yeah, 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 yeah. you are you're in control quote unquote of the story in a video game movie to the extent that the game developers allow you to be yeah I, I guess that's a good point because every sh- every first person shooter is just like you go into a level you kill a bunch of bad guys you get to the end
1: without dying you know yeah I know it's like you gotta save the world from nuclear disaster or something like that it's always the same exactly yeah, yeah. Um. you know you might have a point there. Yeah. The worst thing to say about this movie is that it it simply exists because it can. The best thing you could say about this movie, it's that it's a very experimental movie that really succeeds in some parts. But it's an experimental movie in the sense that it's adapting something from social media that we we, we don't really see that. Usually it's a movie about social media, but not the the posts or the the threads themselves
0: yeah because usually you know if you try to capture social media in a direct way in a movie it dates the movie instantly and it doesn't really hold up very well
1: well yeah and and like a a lot of the movies focus on the founding of social media so like the social network or like what happens with people who control social media so like uh ingrid goes west or don Cheadle in space jam 2 (laughs) (laughs) Did you watch space? No, I didn't. I just know enough about
0: the terribleness of that movie to, to drop a reference there.
1: Oh, okay. I've still yet to watch it. I'm looking forward to it actually, just to make fun of it. But you know what I mean? Like a post itself doesn't really spawn a movie most of the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's like, there's probably lots of people out there who would question whether there's enough material in any social media
1: post to merit an entire movie or show. That's totally sums up my thoughts. Like does this merit a movie? And I mean, it, it, like they did end up making a movie out of it that was you know, kind of entertaining, so pro- kudos to them. But like I said, the worst thing you can say about this movie is that it simply exists. Um, so that about does it for this
0: episode. As always, we ask you to subscribe to the show if you're enjoying it. You want regular updates when we post new episodes. And give us a little rating so that other people can find the show. You gotta feed the almighty algorithm, after all. And if you'd like more detail on The Green Knight, you can head over to connectscope.ca where I've got a full review posted. So until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow
1: in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time.